The Navy's carriers and submarines might be the most technically sophisticated in the world, but they're also the most expensive. And my next guest argues they might not be the most effective in dealing with the rise of China. Alternative strategies and technologies exist. Dan Grazier is the military fellow at the Project on Government Oversight, and he joins me now. Dan, good to have you back. Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me. And you're looking at these carriers, which cost, well, the price tag is $13 billion. It's really untold numbers of billions. I think the Ford is 20 years in testing. I don't even think it's deployed yet. Submarines at $4 billion apiece and so on. So you're arguing for a different approach to equipment. But let's talk about the different approach maybe to China in the first place that you're questioning, which is to seem to be able to take them on head on in a sea and land war. Correct. The current narrative in Washington defense circles is, you know, a rising China presents this imminent military threat to the United States. And the only way to really deal with that is head on, which is essentially attacking directly into China's strongest military position, which, you know, throughout military history, such a strategy rarely works out for, you know, for the for the attacker. In that role. And that's not really what China is planning to do to invade the United States. What you're saying is that their strategy is keep everybody away from here and we can shoot you if you come too close. And maybe that's something we should think about as a sustainable strategy for ourselves. Exactly. You know, throughout China's history, there's only been a tiny handful of instances where the Chinese have been the aggressors beyond their borders. Uh, you know, the, the history of China is the Chinese trying to maintain control over their own territory. Their edges. Right. And that's what they're doing now. But, you know, in the 21st century, it's a very sophisticated defensive network that they're establishing with their anti-access area denial strategy. You know, they have a lot of missiles. They're just trying to keep outsiders as far away from their shores as possible. Yet we're continuing to sink untold billions, tens, hundreds of billions of dollars into this strategy to attack directly into that defensive network. Right. And of course, we also have a different type of network than they do so far. And that is we're in NATO and we are kind of pledged to be the umbrella for a lot of different places. So could a, an adaptation of the Chinese strategy work for the United States? That is to say, to have that denial of access, not just for the two main coasts of the United States, but say Japan or Taiwan it's possible. I think such a strategy would, would look very different for the United States and its allies. And that's why I suggest in my report that the United States and its allies adopts a kind of a spoiling strategy as far as naval affairs go. And the best tool for that are submarines, but not necessarily the $300 billion Virginia-class attack submarines. There are other options that are hugely effective. The Swedish have built a number of air-independent propulsion attack submarines. Submarines. They're a lot smaller. They're a lot less expensive than the nuclear attack submarines. And so we could buy them in numbers that would really matter. And particularly for our allies, instead of asking the Australians to buy five Virginia-class attack submarines, and it's unclear if our own shipyards can even provide those, you know, instead of buying five of those for the same cost, they could have upwards of 30 air-independent propulsion attack submarines, which would be hugely effective spoiling weapons for any potential Chinese naval aggression. 
We're speaking with Dan Grazier, senior military fellow at the Project on Government Oversight. So these submarines that the Swedish have, when you say air independent, the United States has always had either diesel, which are no longer in existence, which have to be on the surface for a certain amount of time, or nuclear, which stay under for months. These are things that can stay under for a long time and don't need to breathe on the air to run their engines? Correct. And they're not battery-powered either. Not exactly. So an air-independent, a modern air-independent propulsion submarine, it runs on diesel, but also liquid oxygen. Uh, so you use that for combustion, and there's a couple different ways. The, the Swedish submarines use a Stirling engine. It's older technology where you heat up an expansion chamber, which then creates mechanical propulsion. and uh, you know, Somehow it turns a screw at the it, back. It does. <laughs> the screw is turned by an electric motor, but the Stirling engine is what – that's what powers the generator to create that charge for, the, for propulsion and then for all the ship systems. But it's a so really- it gets its oxygen from within the system and not from the air. Correct. Got it. Okay. Right. And so it can remain submerged for upwards of like two weeks, like 14 days. Some of the specifics are classified, but around two weeks is the publicly available information we have. It sounds like the best thing since the Wankel, I was going to say, if anyone (laughs) remembers the Wankel engine. Probably not. Just me. But the United States would have to change not only technology and training, but basic doctrine for what a submarine is and what it does. Right. You know, to be clear, I'm not suggesting that we abandon nuclear submarines because especially for the United States with the Pacific on one side and the Atlantic on the other, you know, we need to have, you know, a capability to bridge that distance. But, you know, we also have allies in the region. If we're talking about the Western Pacific, we have United States territories in the Western Pacific that could be used as operating bases for these submarines. But yes, it would be a doctrinal shift. There would definitely have to be, you know, an increased capacity as far as schools and things like that in the Navy to operate these. But if we trade some other structure, you mentioned the $13 billion plus nuclear aircraft carriers that are hugely vulnerable to these very type of air independent propulsion submarines. There's a famous story about the USS Ronald Reagan being sunk, and I'm using the finger quotes, by Swedish submarines a number of times, and they could never- In exercises. In exercises, right. And the carrier was never able to find these very quiet little attack submarines that the Swedish have. But I think it would be worth it over time to adopt this different strategy by changing some of our spending priorities. I think we could save a lot of money, which would be good, but we'd have a much more effective spoiling capability to any potential Chinese you know, aggression. We should be adopting a defensive strategy. Um, or a deterrent strategy. Right, a deterrent strategy. That's probably a better word for it. But it would help, I think, kind of de-escalate some of, you know, some of the tensions that exist between the United States and China right now. Because in the long run, a direct military confrontation between the Chinese and the United States benefits no one, which is one of the reasons I think that the Chinese still, 70-plus years you know, on, have not invaded Taiwan. They haven't even been able to capture any of the, obviously not the main island of Taiwan, but even the smaller islands that are within visual distance, artillery range of the main mainland of China. Those are difficult propositions. But beyond that, it doesn't make any political or economic sense to have that kind of direct military confrontation. And of course, our procurement system are geared around to what they're geared around. So I would think that would need to change because what you're implying is that large numbers of more nimble types of weapons, both to operate and to maintain and to acquire, means that you've got numbers where we have great power but smaller numbers. And 
I mean, isn't there also the idea that numbers matter in any kind of conflict? And also, large numbers give you greater flexibility. Right. Numbers do matter, particularly in naval in naval campaigns. One of the pieces I cite in my big report was a report done by a naval historian who found that I think it was in 28 naval campaigns that he studied, the larger force won in 25 or 26 of them. And the exceptions were a long, long time ago when there were a whole lot of extenuating circumstances. So the larger fleet does win. One side had metal and one side had wood. Right. It would have been, (laughs) yes, it was something, there was was some very major offset that accounted for that, those anomalies. But right now, you know, if you think about the fact that we're on the cusp of an $800 billion defense budget, that supports a fleet of 50 nuclear attack submarines. Which is not that many, you know, particularly when you think that fleet has to be split between two different oceans. Right. And uh, now the balance of that is in the Pacific, but that's still less than 30 submarines. And in a 10 to 1 cost ratio, you could have a lot of these. Yes. And it's not just sheer numbers. You have to think about the effect on military operations when you have those bigger numbers. So if you have a smaller fleet of, of more sophisticated you know, weapons, those more sophisticated weapons present a bigger challenge. But because there's, so, there's fewer of them, that's an easier problem set for the adversary to deal with. When you are able to flood the zone with a whole bunch of weapon systems, then you create just this myriad of problems that eventually just becomes overwhelming for the enemy to deal with. You overwhelm his defenses and you overwhelm his ability to even mentally deal with that with that challenge. Plus, if they sink a carrier, well, it's not World War II anymore. You want to build a new one. Yeah, we'll, we'll be ready in 20 years with it. Right. The USS Ford was laid down in 2009 and the Ford actually left on its first full-scale deployment at the beginning of May of this year. Right. So you're talking 13, 14 years from... It was already rusty by the time it <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. And so it just takes forever for the United States to build these kind of things. You know, uh, you know go back to my one of my favorite topics, the F-35. That contract was awarded in October of 2001. We are now in July of 2023. That program has still not met the criteria for four-way production. Well, we'll leave it there. (laughs) Some good thought. Dan Grazier is Senior Military Fellow at the Project on Government Oversight. Thanks so much, as always. Hey, Tom, thanks for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his essay at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members, raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, 
and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role, even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And And I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always make sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand, when I say I cannot, it's it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, And I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice, you can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. 
You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. (laughs) Um, Describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader, because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. it's, It's needed uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. You, yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm I'm gonna have to elaborate on two. Yeah. If that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, Integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE, and its membership, and where we were four or five years ago, and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, 
Is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. That's just mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.